This Augusta Golf Show podcast is brought to you by Audi Augusta. Online at AudiAugusta.com. Martin Davis is a golf historian, author, and publisher. His latest book, The Ryder Cup, Golf's Grandest Event, is the definitive book on the Ryder Cup. It's a pleasure to welcome Martin Davis back to the Augusta Golf Show. How are you, Martin? Hey, John. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. So, last weekend, 90th anniversary of Bob Jones completing the Grand Slam. I wanted to spend a good portion of the show this morning talking about that. So let's start with this. Um, He did not win the four majors of the day by accident. This was something he set out to do, wasn't it? Yeah, it most certainly was. Um, He went to the uh, USGA uh, Executive Committee meeting, an annual meeting, um, before the 19th, or I guess with the 1930 uh, uh, year, um, and um, he started 1930, although he didn't talk about it, but his clear-cut objective was the Grand Slam. And now he was not from a wealthy family, so only one time did he ever go uh, back to Britain on his own nickel. Uh, and it was an event that only presented itself every four years because the USGA would pay for the trip over to play on the Walker Cup team and then the RNA would would schedule the uh, British Amateur and the British Open so that the American side could could play in it as well. Uh, the interesting thing about it was he actually entered two early season events in the States. One was the Savannah Open, and he finished second behind Horton Smith by one stroke. And interestingly, this would be, despite having a 65 in the third round, and that was an extremely low score in those days. Mm-hmm. That would be the last tournament he would ever lose. Um, he went on to play the Southeastern Open at Augusta, and he won it by by a whopping thirteen strokes. And he all of a sudden had had somehow learned how to pitch the ball very well, and that would serve him well throughout the Grand Slam, but especially in the British Open at Hoylake. Uh, but Bobby, he was playing so well. Bobby Crookshank, one of the pros, he called it, said that he was going to win, go to Britain and win the two events there, and then come back here and win the two events here. Uh, but, you know, lost sort of in the annals of history is the Grand Slam for Jones was not a cakewalk. Now, most people think that the Grand Slam consisted of four events. It actually, in Jones's mind, consisted of five. And that fifth event was the Walker Cup. And that year, Jones was named captain. He was clearly the best player in the world at the time, amateur or professional. And it was held at Royal St. George's in, in Sandwich at the southeastern coast of England. And the USGA, uh, USGA the U.S. Uh, team dominated and won 10-2. Uh, to two. Uh, And Jones won both of his... Uh, matches the uh, alternate shot with Doc Willing, and then he dominated Roger Weatherit, who he would later meet in the British Amateur, 9-8. and eight. Um, And Jones played exceptionally well uh, in the uh, uh, Walker Cup, and it wasn't until a few years ago that just one of his all-time records of number of wins was was eclipsed. Uh, now, now the he British thought, amateur. yeah, he thought that was going to be the toughest, the toughest nut to crack, didn't he? 
Oh, absolutely. The, the British amateur was played at St. Andrews. And although Jones was a very modest man, um, he thought that, that he would have problems with the British amateur. And he had, had earlier, had never won it, uh, because the early rounds up until the final was played at 18 holes. And his philosophy was, or his, his, his thought was, that in 18 holes, anyone could get hot and and defeat the better player, although he never really expressed it quite quite that way. But he felt in 36 holes, the cream was going to rise to the top. So he he really had a bit of a tough time through the uh, uh, British uh, amateur, and that was played at St. Andrews. And he just loved, at first he hated St. Andrews in the early 20s when he tore up his scorecard in the British Open and you know, sculpt. You know, just the, the RNA just excoriated him for it as as a youngster. Um, but it was it was the toughest tournament for him, um, and he called it the most important tournament of his life. Uh, and so, for example, it was interesting. He beat a coal miner in the first round, three and two. Um, and on the as 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 I remember reading on the fourth hole, he hit. A drive of, believe it or not, 300 yards with with that equipment in those days. He hit it into Cottage Bunker and hit, get this now, a spade mashie, 140 yards for the most spectacular shot of the tournament, uh, right into the hole. <laughs> made, made an eagle. Um, but the, the 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 his his one of his toughest matches was. Against and and the Brits had some really terrific amateurs that were the equal of, of a lot of their professionals. Um, uh, against Cyril Tolly, who was a big bear of a man, and Bernard Darwin would go on later to call it a devil of a match. And actually, it went one extra uh, one extra hole. Uh, the key, as the it is at St Andrews a lot, was the seventeenth hole. Now, the seventeenth hole in those days, and, and not that many years ago, but in those days was played as a par five. Hmm. And you could cut off the corner, the dog leg right by going over the drying sheds. What the drying sheds were is where they used to dry out the hickory shafted clubs. You know, they, they let them dry mm-hmm. in these sheds and that's where the, uh, the hotel is now, but you could drive, you would drive over it and shorten the hole, but you could also end up going out of bounds. So, um, Tolly went left, a bit left, of the of of that, leaving a longer shot, and Jones went even further left. Uh, Tolly, who was a pretty big hitter, decided to lay up, and he did. And Jones took out a spoon. We'd call it a, a two-wood, if anybody's playing a two-wood today. Uh, and, he, and he thought he would, could cut a two-wood into the green and hit the par five and two. And uh, uh, he hit the green. And... Um, um, uh, it looked like it was going to go up against the wall or perhaps out of bounds, but it hit someone. It bounced up on the green, but it hit someone, uh, a fan standing behind the hole and ended up on the fringe. Uh, they both made fours. Um, um, and then one, one of the great concepts of golf that we don't play any longer, uh, they both have, um, they have 17, they have 18, so they went on to the extra hole. So they played the first hole, and Tolly left himself. It didn't hit too 
really good shots. But Jones, as they said in the day, laid him the dead stymie. So in other words, Jones won the hole because Tolly couldn't get to the uh, to the hole. Um, in the semifinal, we played against another terrific um, uh, player called uh, George Voigt, and Jones won on 18. I mean, it was tough for him to win these these matches, and he ended up going into the final. He had played in seven grueling matches, um, and the final was again against uh, Roger Weatherett, as he had played him in the in the uh, Walker Cup. Um, and Jones's thought, and this was always a great thought of Jones, and it's a good thought for most golfers playing uh, uh, in, in, in tournaments like this, was not play against your opponent, but play against old man par. And what was great is if you look at some of the old photos, you'll see him being escorted around the course by Bobby's, uh, you know, the British police, and just tremendous crowds. And these are the days before World Fairways. Um, but he closed out, um, he, he, and remember it it was a 36 holer. Um, and at the lunch break, he was five up after the, uh, nine holes of the, uh, final match of final 18, he was still five up, but then kind of went on a sprint and closed, uh, Roger, uh, weathered out on 13 to win his only, um, British amateur. And I think one of the great things about these the, these players is 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 reading some of the literature, and it really is literature. And Bernard Darwin's the headline of his article in the Times of London, um, which they never identify him as as Bernard Darwin. It's just uh, our correspondent. Um, the headline was "The Perfect Golfer," is how he described uh, Jones. So, so after he wins the British Amateur, he uh, takes a little break and and goes to Paris before the British Open, which is again right around the corner, right? Yeah, it was it was coming up, and they, he and Mary went to Paris, and he ended up playing in an exhibition match. And apparently, um, he later remarked, he said he he couldn't wait to get back to England after eating all the heavy French food, and he he was dying for some cold mutton. So, uh, and, and when he came back and, and the, the, the open championship that year was at Oilake and th- there was a sense that was written at the time that, that there was sort of a, a malaise in his game. I mean, he had really been on the top of his game for a very long time and, uh, believe it or not, he had to qualify. He shot 150 to qualify. Um, so, which is interesting. And in a lot of these events that even, you know, past champions, um, having a uh, an automatic uh, buy into the tournament, uh, as as they do at least recent past champions today, what uh, was not the uh, the case then. And and to your point, so, to your point of earlier, he had never won the British Amateur, but he'd won the Open, the British Open, as we they called it at the time. He'd won that a couple of times before Hoylake, right? Yes, and he had won the earlier one. Was it uh, the, the last one was in, in twenty seven at uh, at St Andrews, and that that's the one time that that since he had won in twenty six, uh, and realized that the Open was going to St Andrews, the home of golf, he felt an obligation to defend his title at the home of golf. 
So he paid for that trip. It was a non-Walker Cup year. Didn't but he, that was the only time that he went over. Didn't he also feel, Martin, to your point about going to the USGA and talking about uh, winning the Grand Slam, he, he was comfortable at the places he was going to play in 1930, wasn't he? Yeah, he liked, um, he liked all of the courses, especially, and we'll get into that, I guess, in our last segment, but especially Marion, because Marion really encapsulated his entire national championship career. Because he, he played in 1916 at age 14 at Marion for his first national championship. Um, and he lost, believe it or not, he got to the quarterfinals. And then he won again, the U.S. Amateur at Marion in 1924. So by the time he was looking at the schedule, just sort of uh, 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 paraphrase now, just use my own words, but he, he was licking his chops because Marion had meant meant so much to him. But if uh, I remember my so, if I remember my history correctly, and correct me if I'm wrong, he didn't really he didn't really make a big deal publicly that he was out to do this, did he? No, not at all. Not not at all. But he later talked about it that that it was it was in his mind, uh, starting out in uh, nineteen thirty, that that he could do it. And this would probably be. I think he realized that he wanted to really get on with his life. You know, he was a, a lawyer already and um, uh, had a family, and figured that nineteen thirty would be it. And uh, you know, he thought he had a chance uh, to pull off something that. No one had ever done so, and quite honestly, no one still has has never accomplished. Even when we add in, we now consider the the professional game right. as part of it. So, so the golfer listening to the program today may, in some cases, be surprised by something. So Jones goes and wins the British Amateur, and he goes and mm-hmm. and wins the British Open, and many people are very familiar. With, with seeing him going down Broadway in a ticker tape parade. But many people might think that he got that ticker tape parade for winning the Grand Slam. But you're going to tell exactly. us. You're going to tell us no. Exactly. Um, people, and, and that was that was the people would think that, oh, well, that, that ticker tape parade. But it was when they remember those were the days when, you know, we didn't have big planes flying across the Atlantic. Right. Um, what it, what it was was you you went by ship and then you had to go through quarantine. Um, so so that but what was interesting at Hoylake for the British Open, um, I mean he struggled. He had he he qualified, um, but uh, uh, he did uh, uh, he did kind of struggle through it. Um, was not leading for the fourth round with the double round, um, and uh, Archie Compton was. And they weren't playing to Compton was they were they weren't playing together. Uh, when Compton was finishing up eighteen, Jones was teeing Bob Jones was teeing off on the first hole, um, and uh, but somehow Compton missed a little one and a half foot putt, and and after playing really really well, um, he um, he, uh, <laughs> he he fell apart and shot eighty two, and the the air went out. Uh, but Jones really, as they described it at the time, uh, fought his way to a 75. And Herb Wind, who you know usually says things best, uh, wrote that uh, at Hoylake, Bobby had won through patience and guts and philosophy and instinct. 
So it wasn't just, you know, a lot of people looking back 90 years ago think, oh, it was just a steamroller and, and it was, um, you know, he would just roll over everyone. No, this stuff was, was tough. This was tough stuff to do. Yeah. Um, so he gets back on the on the boat, and they, they come to New York. And in those days now, I don't know if people really know what ticker tape is anymore, but it was, and it, it was down on Wall Street. There was sort of a bell-shaped glass with a, a ticker inside that would print out on a piece of tape about a half an inch wide stock prices. That's how they... That's how they did it. Those were their computer communications in those days. And they would end up with all this extra ticker tape. And so when they'd have a parade up Broadway, um, offices then had windows because we didn't have air conditioning yet. And they would throw out all this ticker tape out of the windows with the parade coming up Broadway and the big crowds. And it was an open car and it looked like it was snowing, but it was snowing ticker tape. Uh, it, it was really uh, quite cool. And there was a long procession, and they went up to City Hall, which is up Broadway, and uh, met Mayor Walker uh, at, the, at City Hall. And it was funny how he introduced himself. He says, here I am, the world's worst golfer, <laughs> introducing the world's best golfer. And it, it was a huge, uh, a huge um a huge win. But then, now remember that the, 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 the five events spread out through the summer, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it was not, you know, four weeks in a row. I mean, like, you know, or four months in a row. I mean, it's not like we're, we're playing the majors now. Uh, and so in 1930, the U S open went to interlocking in, in Minnesota. And the problem was, as can happen in the, the Midwest is, is that it, the heat for the open was just incredible. Uh, it was a hundred plus degrees with high humidity. And Cyril Tolley, the great British amateur player that I mentioned earlier, um, he was a big bear of a man. He collapsed. And remember, in those days, they're playing with suits on, right? And people are not wearing performance, you no, know, fabrics. No, there's no, there's now. no dry wicking. No, it's it's wool. No, no, it's wool. It was wool, and they wore ties, and they wore a jacket. So first round, he shoots a one under 71, and he's behind Tommy Armour and McDonald Smith. And the second round at Interlochen was one, one of Jones's very famous shots, and that was called the lily pad shot. So he's playing the 17th hole. I guess it's on, I guess it's Friday. It, it is Friday. And in the top of his backswing, he notices two little girls scampering across a fairway. And he, and he flinched and topped it a little. And there was a pond in front of the green. And the ball, like you would skip a stone as a kid across a, a, a pond, mm-hmm. you try to see how many times you could skip it. Uh, it skipped across the green and ended up just on the other side, on the green side. And uh, whether it hit a lily pad or not, it came to, it came to be known as the lily pad uh, shot. And he ended up with a, a 73 and he was at even par after two rounds. So just off the lead, though, I mean, this was big-time stuff. Now, remember, he's playing against the professionals. And just off the lead were three former U.S. Open champions, Sarazen, Farrell, and uh, uh, Hagen. So it was anyone's tournament. 
Um, I mean, they were really uh, a terrific player. And, um, so the they, the the third and fourth rounds again were played as double rounds, um, and in in the third round uh, he starts three under, and those were really incredible scores in those days. But <clears throat> he could have set just with by parring in, he could have set the uh, open scoring record at the time, but he bogeyed the last two holes for a sixty-eight, um, and he was at that, and then he was. Uh, five up over um, Harry Cooper. Now, here's a really interesting thing. I mean, he was, excuse me, he was not the perfect golfer. Um, He was, um, I mean, he, you know, he was sometimes all over the place, kind of like Tiger was and Jack was rarely on occasion, but was. Um, In the fourth round, um, he had, three double bogeys on three of the par threes. Um, and the third one was the 17th hole, which was the longest hole in uh, par three in open history up to that point. It was at 262 yards. And he, he did end up getting a favorable ruling by the USGA president at the time, by the name of Prescott Bush, which was George Bush, President Bush number one's father and President Bush number two's grandfather. Um, and he's on 18 and he's 40 feet under the hole. And he just, he describes this beautifully. He has the, he saw the putt take a break and he knew it was in the hole. You know, it was about eight or 10 feet from the, from the cup. And he made a 75 and he shot 287. And, and that was his personal best in the U S open was it was the 287. So now he's finished with that. And there's one event left, and the pressure is building. Okay, so now we've got Jones with three legs of, of, of the Grand Slam, and we'll get into the Grand Slam naming of it in just a couple of minutes. But now, here comes Marion. Um, and as you said earlier, you know he'd won the amateur at Marion back there in, in 24. It's, it's one of the reasons he thought he had a really good chance to do this, um, mm-hmm. and one of his favorite spots in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, Jones is uh, one of his famous quotes is, "I know of no American course more to my liking than Marion." And it, it, and it was not just that the course, as we would say today, fit his eye, but it was the, the site of his first championship at age fourteen in in nineteen sixteen. Um, so, I, I will, and, and again, <laughs> here's the greatest golfer in the world, clearly. I mean, there's there's no world golf rankings, but he was the best. I mean, it, with the papers used to write, it was, um, you know, they used to call him Emperor Jones, and it was Jones against the field. Um, but he he had a qualify, and he won the qualifying medal with uh, a 69-73, and he shot 142. So he had to play 36 to qualify. Now, um, I, I want to tell you an, an interesting story that not a whole lot of people know. And then we'll get into the derivation of the name. Um, as you know, the, the U.S. amateur was played at match play. And there were two brackets. And Jones was in one bracket. And in the other bracket was a 16-year-old fellow from Los Angeles who was supposed to start at Stanford University in the fall but had to wait to December or January 
for the later semester uh, because of the because tra- he was going to play in the amateur, and and he had it. You know, it was a train across the United States, and it was a long and arduous. And his name was Charlie Seaver. And uh, he was a terrific, terrific player. And he gets all the way to the uh, to the semifinal match. And he's in the opposite bracket from Jones. And his dad, uh, oh well, in the in in the opposite bracket, Jones is playing against his very good friend and Walker Cupper champion, fellow by the name of Jess Sweetser. And Jones is really on the top of his game. And he shoots. He beats Sweetser nine and eight. I mean, it was it was a it was a it was a beating. So they're playing in the semifinal match. They're playing it at thirty six holes. So Charlie is playing against a fellow by the name of Gene Homitz, who people might know that that's who Jones ended up. And I'll get to how that happened uh, on the eleventh hole at Marion. But Charlie Seaver is five up at lunch. Now, at that time, you can file this under the more things change, the more they remain the same. There was a new club out, and the new club um, was sort of was a concave club. And Charlie's father was a USGA committeeman. And he thought, although the club was legal, he didn't want Charlie playing with it because he thought it, it was illegal. So Charlie was not allowed to have the club in his bag. So at the lunch break, Charlie is five holes up on Gene Holmans. Looks like he's going to meet whoever's going to win. Uh, looks like it was going Jones in the in the uh, in the final. And Holmans has this club, and. In that final 18, he has five shots out of bunkers with this new club, and he gets up and down. And so he lost all five strokes. Homan shot 69 in the afternoon. Charlie shot, as he told me, 77 in the afternoon. And he lost all five holes, and he lost 18, not to make it into the final. Mm -hmm. Now, Charlie told me, and um, I have to tell you who Charlie is. Uh, he, he's the father of Tom Seaver. Yep. So <laughs> the apple doesn't fall. No, no. And, far and, from the tree. No, and, and yeah, yeah, and Tom Seaver's dad could have played Jones uh, in that 1930 U.S. Amateur for Jones' Grand Slam. And a number of years ago, I interviewed Charlie for my Jones book when he was still alive at Tom's house in Connecticut where I was living mm-hmm. and um, and and Char- and I said Charlie what did you do he said I said did you go watch the, the the final the next day he said of course I did I watched the whole thing I you know I, I'm a golfer he, he really loved it uh, and he was later in life too was a was a um, a good friend of uh, uh, of Jones and when Jones used to come out to Los Angeles he would uh, you know, stop and have lunch or dinner with him. Um, so in the final round, you know, Charlie watched, as I said. Right. And, and Jones had shot 33 on the, uh, on the back of the second nine. Uh, Holmans did, uh, 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 of the first 18 did not play well. 
and had a seven up lead uh, at the lunch break. Yeah. Um, so it, they came to um, what was hollowed grounds, and they have a wonderful ceremony there, which they had. I think they're having this weekend uh, on the eleventh hole. Um, Jones hit two perfect shots and and was about twelve or fourteen feet, as Charlie explained it to me uh, from the hole. And Holmans was about twenty five feet. And he hits his putt and missed, never went to pick up his ball, and uh, uh, just walked over to congratulate Jones. And that was the Grand Slam. Now, where does the name Grand Slam come from? There was a newspaper man from, I think, one of the New York papers. We used to have lots and lots of newspapers. And he called it, thank God this name never caught on, the, impre- the impregnable quadrilateral. And his name was George Trevor, but that never caught on. Go figure. Um, but the derivation of Grand Slam is is a bridge term, the card game. And bridge is played, as you know, most people know, you 52 cards in a deck and all 13, you, you deal it out to four players and it's a team, you know, two against two. Um, and if you take all 13 tricks, in other words, you win 13 hands. In other words, every hand, that's called a grand slam. And there's even something called a little slam, which is if you take 12 tricks. Tricks are the hands, you know, each each one that's played. So it's it's the derivation is a game that used to be played, and still is to some extent in a lot of uh, golf clubs, uh, is bridge. So the interesting, so it, it got it got the name, and in the Philadelphia paper the next day, I mean, this was huge news. Huge news. The, the headline on the sport, I guess it, it was the sports section, and the Philadelphia paper was, Jones crushes Homan's 8-7 and seven in golf final. And the subhead was, Atlanta attains Lynx Grand Slam by fourth 1930 crown. Now, I, and there's a big picture there, but underneath there's a smaller headline to show you where this ranked in sports it said and this was when the a's played in philadelphia a's drop final to yanks 10-8 <laughs> ruth slams <laughs> two homers so bobby jones eclipsed <laughs> two homers by the great babe ruth and in 1930 bobby jones was indeed the biggest thing in sports and he won, what's, which was, was the original, uh, I, I, it may have been the original one, but he won the Hickok belt for the best sportsman uh, of the year. And he won it over people like Johnny Weissmuller, who was a, an Olympic swimmer, and Gene Tunney, the, the boxer, and Red Grange. I mean, it was against really incredible you know, sports people. That was the golden age of sports, and no one shone brighter than Jones did in 1930. Martin, I can't, I can't thank you enough for taking all this time to do this. I, I deeply appreciate it. Uh, thank you for saying yes when I asked. Thank you for doing this. Uh, of course, whenever you, whenever you ask. <laughs>